Well, you may have heard it said about the Episcopal Church that it's a place where you don't need to check your brains at the door. Robin Williams put that on his top 10 reasons to be an Episcopalian, along with pew aerobics and the ordination of women priests. As Episcopalians, we are not expected to believe a bunch of things just because somebody said so. Rather, we are encouraged to use the faculties that we have, reason, emotional intelligence, experience, which includes our own personal experience, and history, which is, of course, collective experience, to sort through what life presents, to try to understand it, and to respond appropriately. We pray in baptism, give this person an inquiring and discerning heart, so that each of you who have been baptized in the Episcopal Church has specifically been prayed for, that you would have an acquiring and discerning heart. To be Episcopalian is to think, to ask questions of life and the scriptures, and to sort through the answers, and then commit ourselves the best we can to living in accordance to our findings. But nice as it was of Robin Williams to credit this brain-friendly approach to the Episcopal Church, it is an attitude that predates the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion. We see it in the answer that Jesus gives to the taunting religious leaders of his day. We just read that in the Gospel of John. They're saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And what does he do? He says, the works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. In other words, he says, look at my track record. Look at the evidence. Think. Evaluate it. What do you find? He asks them to think. He isn't just going to give them the spark notes answer. They need to recall their very own scriptures. Remember what the predictions were about the Messiah. And compare them to the works of Jesus. Let us pretend, just for a moment, to be in the position of those inquiring Judeans. What had been reported about Jesus thus far? I'm going to include testimony actually that comes both from the Gospel of John and from the other synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, because at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, by the way, I wasn't able to include everything that Jesus did in my Gospel, so i.e. read up in the other ones. So this is what we have. At a wedding, when his mom asked, Blessed Mother's Day, by the way, at a wedding, when his mother asked, he turned seven large jars of water into really good wine. He healed several blind men, one blind from birth. He healed a crippled man who couldn't walk for 18 years. He fed 5,000 people with a few fish 
and a little bread, and they had leftovers. He restored a miserable man who could not be restrained with chains, but went about howling and bruising himself with stones. Jesus commanded the demonic powers that tortured him to depart, and the man regained his right mind. He wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus told him to go back to his community and tell them about the mercy of God. He had turned when an old woman with a debilitating hemorrhage touched his robe, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. And she was. He said to a little girl who had died, Little girl, arise. And she did. And then he told her parents, give her something to eat. He came across a funeral procession in the town of Nain and spoke directly to the corpse, the only son of a widow. And the boy got up, restored to life and to his rejoicing mother. He told a paralyzed man on a stretcher that his sins were forgiven, and when that caused a ruckus, he said to him, get up, take your mat, and walk. And he did, just that. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He took time in the middle of the night to talk to curious, fear-immobilized Nicodemus about his doubts. He prayed a lot, often where no one could see him doing it. He told his disciples that he would suffer and die and on the third day be raised again from the dead. He knew the scriptures and he quoted from them very often, very accurately. There is no account of him profiting from his acts of power. He lived as a poor person. He encouraged the women who followed him Specifically, he told Martha that Mary was doing the right thing to sit at his feet and be instructed, even though culture frowned on educating women. He hung out with poor people and with prostitutes, and he healed lepers. It was quite a track record. Hearing it now, it is hard to understand how those Judeans could have reacted so negatively. Perhaps they did not believe that the reports were true. And of course, that's something we must contend with today. Do we choose to believe what the Bible says about Jesus? And if so, in what way? Will we only believe the bits that fit our Western post-enlightenment minds, as in only accept the non-miraculous stuff? Or will we concede that the same people who testified about the Jesus who said, blessed are the poor, also testified about his miracles and his bodily resurrection? And will we give extra weight to those claims because those early witnesses gained nothing in worldly status by their confession of what they had seen. In fact, the reverse. Many faced persecutions for it. 
Whereas since the 19th century, one could gain quite a bit of academic credibility and acclaim by discrediting the scriptures. Biblical scholar Rudolf Bultmann really built his reputation by arguing that the miracle stories, which he called myths, could just be dismissed as inaccurate and unimportant. He called his work demythologizing the Bible. But Boltman did not, like Peter, face persecution and end up crucified for his belief. Why does a sane man, like Peter, claim to have seen the miracles he saw and the resurrected Jesus, even though it brings him no worldly gain? In fact, it jeopardizes his very life. What do you think? Because he saw the risen Jesus. And to say he didn't would be a lie. And he got to know the goodness of Jesus personally. And on that evidence, he is willing to step out in courageous faith. There's a verse in Psalm 34 that says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. It's interesting because it implies that we have to actively try God out in order to know him and be able to trust him. In trying God out, we'll find out personally over time that he is good. Like test driving a new car or trying one of those new kinds of milk. I remember when I first encountered almond milk and I thought this is going to be absolutely disgusting. And so I didn't try it for three years. But then my daughter Julia handed me her almond milk latte one day and I decided it was fantastic. It has a lot fewer calories. My question to you is this. Have you tried God out? Have you prayed to him? Have you read the Gospels? Now, there is a way of trying God out that is seriously hoping for him to be everything that the Bible reports. Loving, just, almighty, faithful, powerful, merciful, holy, and the one who came to be with us even in our suffering. And that kind of pursuit will always be fruitful. It will withstand some pretty hardcore disappointments because God honors a hopeful heart that is looking for him. But there is also a way of trying to find God out that is taunting, kind of like those Judeans in our story. And that, regrettably, will not necessarily result in finding God. <clears throat> I remember an interview with a Swedish physicist who described how there was once a time at a conference when he'd just become really despondent and so he got quite drunk and he went out onto the beach and cried out to God, God, if you are real, show me now. And apparently there was a long silence and then someone bumped into them in the dark and one of them, I don't remember which, said something obscene. 
And from that, he concluded to his satisfaction that there was no God. But I thought to myself, what self-respecting physicist would conduct an experiment while drunk and be satisfied with the results? I mean, even if an angel of God or a seal had waddled up on the sand and barked, yes, Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. He died for your sins and offers you complete forgiveness now. And if you will turn to him, he will give you everlasting life and heal you. Well, even if that had happened, I doubt that the scientist would have believed. He would have decided that he was drunk and he was just hallucinating. Well, let's not be like that silly scientist. It's important here to make that distinction. Nicodemus went to Jesus with doubts and he was honest. And we know Nicodemus showed up to bring the body of Jesus uh, and bury it. Jesus met him in his doubts. But let's not be like that silly scientist. Instead, search diligently and hopefully for evidence of Jesus in all the fullness that the Gospels present. Search for him with the same urgency that you search for your car key when you only have one. Search for him in the scriptures. Search for evidence of him in the church. And I know the church is not perfect. Christians have done great harm in this world and still do. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on your blessed church. Restore it, renew it, cleanse it, fill it with your loving life. But you know what? God didn't promise a perfect church. He did promise, however, to meet us in church through his son, in his body of believers, and in the bread and the wine. That story from Acts 9 about Dorcas or Tabitha, same person, two names, well, it gives us a prototype of the church that was growing early on, and it helps us gather evidence and evaluate for ourselves the goodness of the church and how it is that Jesus is present in it and might be present still. Well, first of all, the account is about a woman who is called a disciple. And the Greek word that is used is in the feminine. She is a disciple. And that shows, of course, Jesus' high regard for women and the position that they held in his church, which is very comforting to me, particularly now as I know that there are countries where women are being forbidden to take part in public life. That is not the church of Jesus. We hear that she did good works and acts of charity. And then, tragically, she dies. But with hope in the power of God, her acquaintances summon the apostle Peter, who is about five hours walk away in Lydda. It had been reported that he had just healed a man in, jo in Jesus' name just a few days before. Well, five hours later, actually ten hours later, because they have to go to get him, and then Peter comes back, 
and he finds Dorcas surrounded by a bunch of widows whom she had been helping. And they are, of course, in mourning. But even in their mourning, they show Peter their clothes because she was a seamstress and he, she had sewn clothes for these widows who didn't have the resources uh, to buy clothes themselves. Well, Peter, having walked the five hours, tells them to wait outside and then he kneels at the bed and prays, Tabitha, get up. And she does. Well, what does this little story tell us about the early church and, and what we might even look for in our church as signs of Jesus? It's a place where we can expect to see women regarded as equals. It's a place where we expect to see people giving their resources to those in need. It is a place where people in leadership go out of their way to perform acts of mercy. It is a place where those low on society's totem pole have high status. It is a place where prayer in the name of Jesus happens and is effective. It is a place where the name of Jesus is said with reverence because he is alive. Now, some of you here are thinking, yes, that is why I am here, because I believe. And to you, I encourage you, do the works that reveal the church to be Jesus' church. Give us the credibility that we so desperately need do the works that reveal that you follow Jesus and that he is the Son of God. But others of you, you are wondering, is this Jesus story really, really real? The fullness of it. I mean, is there that much power in his name now? Well, I encourage you to search and taste and see. Keep coming to church. Go receive prayer in the healing chapel in the name of Jesus. Search the works of the church. And may God bless your search. And may you hear the voice of Jesus call you by name. And may you know surely that he gives you eternal life and that you will not perish forever. Jesus says, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. What my father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of the father's hand. The father and I are one. May it be so. Amen.